When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. I think it's difficult to create a sustainable economy if you don't scale it. It's not going to be the many small innovators will solve this for us. It has to be everybody. Hello, and welcome to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. I'm Alana Weston, chairman of Selfridges Group, and I believe that sustainability will be the next big disruptor of my industry. It must be placed at the heart of business strategy if we're to overcome the climate crisis and transition to a cleaner and more just economy. Through this podcast, we'll learn what it takes to make change happen. We'll hear from the transformers and the innovators those who've taken existing companies and redesigned their business models, and those who've started something new. This week, I'm joined by Jesper Broden, CEO of Inca Group IKEA, the world's largest home furnishing retailer. IKEA welcomes over 700 million visitors a year to their stores around the world, and several billion to IKEA.com. Jesper's career with the company spans over 25 years. He joined in 1995 as a purchase manager in Pakistan, working his way up through product development and supply chain before becoming CEO in 2017. Welcome to the podcast, Esper. How did you first become engaged in sustainability personally? And when did you begin to understand that it needed to be part of the way you led your business? I think the starting point for me was really as uh, my first assignment in IKEA was actually building up the purchasing operations out of uh, Karachi, Pakistan. It was uh, great business opportunities, but at the same time, you have had all sorts of challenges with child labor, with uh, environmental uh, topics that struck me in the face, so to say. Um, and at that time, I think IKEA realized that we we have to take a full responsibility and turn for operations. Um, and we assumed the dilemmas. It took some years, but it led us to actually develop and implement the code of conduct, which not only helped us mitigate those topics, but also made us a better company from profitability, quality and all sorts. There's nothing better than actually being on the ground and seeing with your own eyes the impacts of your business. You've said that profit and purpose go hand in hand. Can you share how this comes to life at IKEA? And is there evidence of returns on purpose, if it's okay to describe it like that? And in the short term, or, or do you 
Do you think it's really about building resilience for the longer term? One of the classic myths is that uh, purpose and profit wouldn't go hand in hand. Mm -hmm. To start with, I think it is a mindset that purpose and profit has to go hand in hand. Secondly, throughout my journey with IKEA, I've seen over and over again how investments in rooting out quality saves cost. It doesn't add cost. I've seen how investments in people adds productivity and efficiency. It doesn't do the opposite. Um, When it comes to sustainability, it's going to be a better society with lower cost, smarter uh, throughout, because when we talk about uh, these concepts, uh, resource smartness is equal to cost smartness. That's really at the essence of purpose and profit. It's hard, but it's actually also mind. It's both, isn't it? You need to have the faith and then you start to see the opportunity within it. And I actually see sustainability as a really interesting lens to get people to think differently around problems. It opens up the mind. You've also said that sustainability and affordability tie well together. Many people believe that inexpensive products must be inherently compromised. How do you respond to that assumption when it comes to flat-packed furniture? I remember um, a session we had when we discussed the food. It must have been some eight 10 years ago, and we had the whole system in the room. Uh, we had customers and um, customers and the consumers in the room were very clear. We want to have healthier options and we want them to be sustainable. We want them to taste well. So we're not going to compromise on taste. And then we said, are you prepared to pay a little bit more? And the answer was no. <laughs> so that answer comes back over and over again in all our research. Um, if you take uh, the latest IKEA research, 30,000 people around the world, 30 markets, more than 70% of all consumers out there are deeply concerned about climate. Less than 3% are prepared to pay for it. We need to accept that as uh, leaders. Uh, that is the um, customer truth that we are presented by. And if you take the political angle of it, every time you look back the last 10, 20 years when a government has tried to impose taxation and such, um, it backfires. So I, I think actually that mindset is a politically dangerous because it's an illusion. It won't happen. It will backfire on the uh, journey of creating a sustainable environment. So And I don't really see a need for it, to be honest. If you look at the money going into subsidizing carbon economy, by only shifting that uh, to to stimulate and uh, speed up some of the transitions, we don't need more money into the system than that, I think. I mean, I think a lot of people, when they look at inexpensive products with mass availability, they see scale as partnered with exploitation. And I think it's important to explore that as an idea because it's not necessarily true. I think it's difficult to create a sustainable economy if you don't scale it. You you know, we talk about uh, local sourcing and uh, so on, which can be part of the equation, of course, but it's not going to be many small innovators will solve this for us. It has to be everybody and it has definitely to be the big brands, the bigger you are, the bigger responsibility to scale good. And speaking of consumption, a few years ago, an IKEA executive stated that we'd reached peak stuff. And I found that really inspiring, although a lot of retailers might not see it that way. Is it possible to decouple growth from negative environmental and social impact? It has to be. (laughs) Otherwise, we will be in trouble. 
Not only as uh, humanity, but also as businesses. In IKEA's uh, overall climate plan, which I think is an interesting one, and I, I knock on wood and I'm very humble because we're not there yet, but we, we have the ambition to reach climate positive by 2030. The starting point, of course, is drastically reducing our own footprint. It's basically assuming not only the direct responsibility, but basically the value chain, uh, in our case, from the forest to the end of the product. Since we started it, I think it was 16, we started as a benchmark measurement. We have grown as a company by 14% and we have reduced our footprint, absolute footprint with 13%. So there you go. That's a proof. There is a bit of uh, a COVID in that, but that's not the majority. It's uh, systematic shifts uh, in products, in sourcing, in transport, types of products, etc. that has been consistently helping us to deliver to that. So the answer to the question is yes. <laughs> That's very reassuring. And I think we'll be inspiring to many CEOs and business leaders who are listening to it. I mean, throughout the lockdowns, we've seen a real trend towards customers reconnecting with their local community. I've been interested to learn that IKEA will be opening smaller stores closer to where their customers live. And this will obviously reduce dependency on the car and allow high streets to thrive. You're also opening a store in Oxford Circus on one of the greatest shopping streets in the world. What role does the retailer play in the green recovery of our cities? In IKEA's case, uh, our concept was built on big stores on the potato field or rice field. Um, but it's true, uh, people are more and more living in the cities. But also the trend of that uh, not owning your own car, etc., makes um, a little bit of a threat for us, so to say. How do we get people to come to our stores? Our strategy is to serve our customers whenever uh, they want to and however they want. IKEA consumers love to come to the store, love the inspiration, uh, a good day out. Uh, but on a Tuesday night when you put the kids to bed and you need two folding chairs, we need to show up digitally. And in between there, we are experimenting with how do we physically become relevant for people where they are. So we're testing planning studios, we're testing smaller stores, we're trying to figure out the concept of both what type of products and how to become profitable in that. And so far, I would say the interest of those locations has, has been uh, higher than we thought. I'm still curious, we're still experimenting. So I think we haven't fully cracked the final code of the future IKEA yet. And maybe that's uh, part of the fun also, because we're truly testing everything at the moment. You talked a bit about your digital strategy. What do you think will have a bigger impact on the way we do business, digital or sustainability? And how we, do we ensure that digital transformation has sustainability at its heart? There are at least two big shifts happening to our industry, the retail industry. Obviously, retail disruption and digitalization is both a massive threat that has put some of our colleagues out of business the last decade and seen the rise of the huge um, online pure players. A few years ago in IKEA, I think we, we looked upon that. Uh, maybe we were a bit in denial and then we were a bit um, looking at it as an, a challenge. Today, we look upon it much more as an opportunity. In the, the pandemic that has been absolutely horrifying for all of us has at the same time sped up everything that we have had in our plans in order to become a good omnichannel retailer and has saved the day for us. So without the investments we started to do a few years ago, we would have had difficulties to keep all the jobs and stay in black numbers, to be honest. We wouldn't have been. 
looking forward, of course, we stand in a decade with uh, the biggest challenge humanity has ever faced uh, with climate crisis. So in that way, you can say nothing is more important for us than to with speed and, and a totally new level of collaboration, resolve and mitigate that crisis. And there's an interesting cross-section where digital can truly help that. I think that's really interesting, the idea that AI can help us become truly efficient and not wasteful and somehow helping the consumer make those right choices. And maybe those choices are to inhabit a sort of metasphere where we don't have as much stuff. And I wonder if that goes back to this idea of what happens when you get to peak stuff. Is there a sort of digital experience that we could have? Is that something you've explored? Well, there is one path, if you follow it, which is interesting around consumption and maybe the statement of peak stuff. And I have double emotions on that because it leads you to think, should we then stop consuming? For instance, one of the core functions in every home is uh, sleeping. So we are uh, one of the world's um, providers of mattresses and beds, uh, of course. Then if you want a world without consumption, then you need to say, could we find a world where we stop sleeping? And probably not. And if we need to sleep also tomorrow, in what way do we resolve that consumption or that element of uh, how we do it? And we had a team in, in IKEA who worked with uh, some brilliant people in the Netherlands who started to invest in um, recycling of mattresses. Basically, it's not high tech in any way. It's just setting up systems supported by also the progressive uh, authorities in the Netherlands to make sure that um, the opposite behavior is not incentivized, so to say. So we started to build up uh, units to take back mat- mattresses. And what I found out is in Netherlands, about 1.5 million mattresses goes to incineration every year. Now, as we this summer opened the fourth unit to take back material, we will be able to take care of every mattress in Netherlands. Every single mattress. It's not charity. We separate the materials and we sell it. And part of uh, the sales goes back to IKEA's uh, value chain making new mattresses. So, again, I think it's not a matter of peak stuff or or um, uh, going away from consumption. It's about sustainable consumption. That's a great example, I think, of, of how you can transform an entire industry through developing a new system and a new circular model and be more efficient, less wasteful and more profitable at the same time. Can you tell me what role you see diversity playing in solving some of the big problems that business is tackling right now? I see three reasons. One is fairness, and that's good enough in a way. The second thing I see is from a business perspective, you need to reflect your audience, right? Both your coworkers and your customers. In IKEA, we used to say he about our customers, but it is not a he, it's a she uh, for 75% of the time. So, you know, only that mindset uh, led us to maybe think in a wrong way. We thought about services as being not part of IKEA's agenda because it would add cost for him as a customer. But for her, maybe being divorced, two kids at home, uh, full-time work, etc. Service is the only way you get the bookshelf um, up and running in the home, etc. So I think it was uh, a real insightful from a business perspective. And then the third one, as we are now 50-50 in gender equality through our leadership community, and we need to continue to work on it. But, you know, we basically have doubled the amount of talents we can choose from for any position only by shifting our mindset. So I think in relation to sustainability, 
probably the most important argument for us to look at diversity is that, like you said before, you need to be close to the ground. You need to be close to your people. Yes, absolutely. It gives you such insight into the customer, but also into the world. And I guess to truly understand how value is created in a business, we need to take a systemic approach across all stakeholders, with, I guess, the biggest stakeholder being nature, because that's what us humans rely upon. Can you tell me a bit about how you've engaged with team customers and suppliers to move your sustainability agenda forward? We were part of the movement abolishing single-use plastic. In the IKEA sphere, that's not the biggest impact we can have. Uh, so it had more, I think, of a symbolic and the right thing to do. But every company and, and IKEA as a network need to address its uh, root causes. We started early on investing in renewable energy. Today, I think uh, about 60, 50, 60 percent of our own consumption is covered by our own renewable investments. But on overall level, we have now invested uh, 130% of our own consumption into renewable energy. So we have come very far in neutralizing, even creating a positive impact, uh, if you like, uh, on the energy equation. Uh, when you look at mobility, we have the first cities have now uh, been able to implement full EV home deliveries for all home deliveries. I think Shanghai was the first one out. And every city and every country in IKEA is working on trying to figure out ways to, by 2025, have, have only EV home deliveries. Uh, there are certain areas where we are still struggling. We haven't cracked it yet. And they would typically be connected to some of the materials that we are dependent on, like metals. There are interesting things happening in procurement of metals in the world, um, but it won't probably will not kick in before 2030, I think, in our value chain. We haven't solved ceramics and there are a few more material areas where we are. We don't have an innovation or we don't have a solution yet. The starting point for us is always we have to address our own footprint um, and and then make sure that we find ways to raise the impact or even create positive impact. And what do your suppliers say to you when you talk to them about this? When you say, look, this is our strategy. This is where the company is headed. You need to help us to transform. Consumers tend to think that factories are dirty and management are not aware and so on. I, I find the opposite. Um, so in our um, value chain, the home furnishing suppliers to IKEA, it's about, I think, 1,100 suppliers. So it's fairly sizable industries these days. And we have the relationship with IKEA is uh, over 10 years. And that means we've gone through implementation of uh, code of conduct for people, working hours, environment. Th these are things... Um, that belongs to the past. We've gone through massive changes around quality and we all came out profitable, better, more competitive, smarter, so to say. So at the starting point, um, I would say there is no surprise when we speak to anyone in the network of IKEA, I would say. My guess is that it's not resisted. It's actually something that people are seeing the benefit from. I guess there's an opportunity for companies within certain sectors aligning around these challenges. Is it really possible for businesses who compete for customers to work collaboratively for the sake of the planet? Have you seen this working so far? I would say, of course, we are competitors, uh, but there are three dimensions of collaboration that is very interesting right now. One is among competitors, because 
you want to be in the forefront of leading the change of your industry. So I would say the most progressive industries look at each other and say, how can we help each other to be in the lead together to mitigate some of the risks? Um, the second collaboration is a much stronger end-to-end collaboration. Um, we are in IKEA working with suppliers, material providers, transporters, and so on. And the third collaboration, which I'm still think needs to happen much more, is between corporates and governments. So leading up to COP26, which is an incredibly important event, and I would say journey leading up there, we need to become even better in removing red tape between us to talk business and talk realities. Um, And I also see that happening. I had the pleasure to discuss with representatives of um, the EU on the Green Deal, and I was amazed to see the number of actions and decisions. Um, But then how do we connect the dots so that the investments... um, the incentives, the speed of implementation, so that is coordinated. There, I I look forward to even more uh, and more intensified dialogue. Well, that sounds very, very hopeful. But change is hard. And tell us the story of change at IKEA and what's working for you as a leader. IKEA is today 78 years of age, and uh, we have 60 years in collaboration with Poland. And actually, Poland saved IKEA way back. What happened was that when Inva Kampra, the founder of IKEA, when he became a bit too successful with low prices and quite good quality, he was boycotted in Sweden by the uh, Association of um, Furniture. And he went to, to Poland and he found an even better industry and lower prices and came back stronger. So, you know, I think change is part of uh, who we are. There's always a risk that your um, successes becomes your, your worst enemy, right? If you look at the IKEA store today, it's very optimized. You need to have a bit of courage and uh, be a little bit half mad if you want to really try uh, new things, you know. But for me as a leader and for us, it is to accept that these are the big uh, threats out there. Climate, retail disruption, pandemics, politics, they are for real. And how do you turn that into opportunities? And then, you know, you have to fight a little bit to provide arenas for people and protect the innovators and uh, the people who dare to take risks out there because it's only through through that type of leadership that you will find your future paths and on top of that breed a culture where people actually care for the future as well and have an interest in it. Jesper, thank you so much and um, and now for our quick fire round. What's your definition of sustainability? It's a synergy. And is there such a thing as sustainable growth? Yes. Real growth can only be sustainable growth. And what's most important, customer demand, legislation or innovation? That's an interesting question. I like that you put legislation in there. We need to have innovation legislation and the customers as part of the equation here. Maybe more than ever before, this needs to be the same playing field. It's not uh, opposing playing fields or universes. They need to play in sync much more going forward. And who will help us reach our climate goals fastest? The disruptors who bring us brand new products or the transformers who are changing the focus of existing brands? I would say the transformers. I love the disruptors. I love the innovators, the garage bands and whatnot. They are so needed. But if you're big in your business, you need to assume the responsibility as a transformer. You can't wait and hope for innovation to crack it. That's going to be the bonus, I would say. And what three things are you hoping will come out of COP26? The one thing I would like to see out of COP26 is action. 
the last years and I have deep respect for the, the world leaders. They are my rock stars. Uh, people like uh, Cristiana Figueres and others who have been uh, fighting, but also getting people together and negotiating the endless of hours to create world consensus on such a beautiful thing as the Paris Agreement. Now it's not about making the last government, the last company agree whether climate change is a problem or not. Now it's all about what type of actions we take together. So I would say action, action and collaboration would be the three things. And what three things are essential to leading a sustainable business? The first thing I would say is profitability. We need to fight the myth that sustainability is charity. And if we think like that, we will not be in denial. And if we act like that, we will get to the solutions much faster. Jesper Broden, thank you so much for coming on to How to Lead a Sustainable Business. Thank you so much for the opportunity. If you enjoyed this podcast, please do take a moment to subscribe and rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. This lets us know what you think and helps others to find the show. This episode was brought to you by Selfridges Group and Intelligence Squared. It was edited by Debbie Kilbride with technical assistance from Mark Roberts. The executive producer was Farah Jasset. I'm Alana Weston, and this is How to Lead a Sustainable Business.